Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. Every week, Kim and I join you here on Franklin Radio, WFPR 102.9 FM. How are you today, Kim? I'm great, Mark. How are you doing? Everything is great. I'm very excited. Kim and I today have a very special guest, Vince Anter, host and producer of V is for Vino. How are you today, Vince? Uh, doing good. So, Vince, tell our listeners all about your wine background in this fabulous show, Vias Favina, the story behind it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I came from uh, actually not a wine background or a video background. Initially, I wanted to be a rock star. So I went to Los Angeles right after I graduated from college uh, at DePaul University in Chicago. And I had always had the plan. I went and got my backup, you know, my business degree and my IT degree. But I always said I was going to be a, uh, a rock star, a singer songwriter. I was a guitarist and I went out to L.A. and I did that for about five years. But like most musicians do in Los Angeles, I was paying the bills by working in restaurants. And eventually, as I started fading out of the music, because it turns out there's a lot of people who want to be rock stars in Los Angeles. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> so as as that started that to fade, um, I got more and more into wine. And I had a, a manager and he said, hey, why don't you consider taking the sommelier exam? And I learned all about what it takes to become a psalm. I and, and I was really into it. So I studied and I did the flashcards and I did the books and I did a year of going to tasting groups and then the very high pressure tests that comes with it. For those who don't know, if you're going for the sommelier exam, it's a three-part test, a written part, a blind tasting part where you get some wines and you have to say what they are, and then a uh, service exam uh, where you serve master sommeliers. And it's very intense and high pressure. And when I got through all that, what I realized was that nobody was doing the wine TV show the way I would do it. This was even before Instagram was really, really big. There were some people on YouTube in front of their webcam tasting wine, talking about it, but nobody was doing a wine TV show that one, educated and brought value to the consumers, and two, was going to the places. Because as all of us know, if you're into wine, wine is all about the terroir and the place it comes from. It's not like other spirits or, or beer or anything like that. Uh, it needs to be a travel show. And there's a lot of reasons why that show doesn't exist. And we can get into that later, uh, or at least didn't exist up till I made it. But I said, you know what? I have this unique set of skills. I have the wine knowledge. I have a business degree. I have an IT degree from my years of music. I'm comfortable in front of the camera. Uh, why don't I just, why don't I bootstrap it and give it a shot? And so that's what we did. So I produced this wine TV show that is kind of the Alton Brown meets Anthony Bourdain of wine. So we go to wine regions every episode. You meet winemakers, you meet restaurateurs, and we pair dishes with the wine. We do wine educational topics. We try to explore a bit of the local culture. Um, and it's really become this thing that is, has grown. And, and we have four seasons out now. And uh, I'm, I'm currently editing. I'm sorry, we have three, three seasons out. I'm editing the fourth and I'm working on our fifth pitching for, for where we're going to film this year. I like that you say that you, you're sort of the, the Alton Brown of the wine world because 
that approachability was really the first thing that struck me about your show. You talk about wine in a way that, frankly, Mark and I also talk about wine. You know, we we try to make it not dumbed down, but understandable and have it contain information and facts and useful stuff for everyday consumers. You don't necessarily start with that higher level things about the soil and grafting and you eventually get to that stuff but you're also really comfortable about telling the consumer that really basic stuff it's i think that's why i really like your um the geek, the wine geek segment <laughs> of that's, your show that's you know everybody's it really <laughs> is so informative and down to earth and approachable and doesn't make it scary and really makes it fun yeah my, my big joke so she's referring to I have this segment I do every episode where I'm, I'm just in a studio and I I put on a lab coat and I break down a wine topic very simply and kind of comedically so I'll you know I talk about acidity in wine as it relates to you know lemons and and balancing lemonade with sugar and things like that and then we do a different topic every episode and my joke is that I spend all this time effort and energy going to all these places and I should just do a bunch of nerd labs because that's everybody's favorite part of the show. Yeah, Vince, and back on what Kim said, that the show I think is just a great mix. You have the education, you have the nerd lab, you bring us to these vineyards and introduce us to the people behind the label, which Kim and I are always talking to our listeners about. It's, it's about the story to, to have people fall in love with these wineries and these wines. You have the food segments in the shows, uh, even the music. You, I believe you you can find your music for the shows on Spotify too, correct? Yeah, at least for the first couple seasons. I've gotten to the point now, I've got so many episodes that I, I kind of fell behind. But for the first three seasons, I was really trying to get all local artists and I still have some in there. Um, just mm -hmm. being a musician, the music of the show was really important to me. So even still, I spend like for every episode, I spend a full day just picking out the music because to me that drives the energy and the feel of the entire episode. And there's not a moment in any episode that doesn't have music underneath. I just, yeah. I don't know. It feels like it gives it a, a pulse and a heartbeat. And even though it wasn't for the episodes that I watched, you don't expressly state, hey, these are local musicians, but it comes across like it really does add that nice atmosphere to each of the episodes. You do a really great job of really creating that sense of place, which seems to be very near and dear to your understanding of the meaning of wine. It's about the flavor and it's about the grape variety, but first and foremost, it's about that taste of place. Yeah, no, no, I 100% uh, I agree. I mean, the more I can do to transport people to place and going back to something you mentioned, Mark was very kind and said it's this blend of the travel and the food and the the education and obviously, you know, there's music and everything. That's the reason wine has always just enthralled me the way that it has is because I tell people there's a place for you in the wine world, no matter what you're into. If you're into like kind of nerdy science stuff, you can get in the winemaking stuff or you can go be a soil nerd. If you're into the art of it, you can you know, romanticize it and you can, you know, just be involved in that part. If you're in the economics, you can become a collector or distributor or on the sales end. There's really a place for everybody in wine. It's mm -hmm. it's really just an, an amazing beverage that I just don't think any other beverage comes close. That is one of the nice things about food, uh, food and wine, and not only together, but those topics, you really can approach them holistically and jump into it 
wherever you have your passion and you have your strength. Mark was talking a bit before about storytelling and how we like to tell the stories behind the wines that we taste. And you really do such a great job of telling the story of a particular winemaker or the region itself. I love your bits on geology and history. I'm a wine history nerd myself, so I always like when people pay attention to the why behind how a particular wine is or how did it get to be this way? And so much of it is tied to what people have done. You know, it, it Yes, it comes from a plant and, you know, it's an agricultural product, but it wouldn't necessarily be the way that it is unless people made certain decisions to do certain things along the way. So I like when and when storytellers like yourself can bring all of those parts into it. Yeah. And a wine ends up being, a you know, a combination, equal parts, tradition, laws and terroir, right? Mm -hmm. It all it all affects the final product and what it's going to end up tasting like. You do such a good job too, Vince, of putting things on the screen as you're talking about them. And then like you were saying, you bring us the nerd lab segments. And I had to ask you, I noticed in the earlier episodes, you had a Cavalier's spit bucket. It, were you brought up in Cleveland or what's the, the idea? Yeah, with the yeah. That's both my ode to Cleveland. Uh, I am from a suburb of Cleveland. I'm a, a pretty big Cavs fan. And also to uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, who kind of started the whole, yeah. he started wine, you know, wine TV or uh, wine library TV where he was on YouTube. And I basically said, when I started, I was like, I want to make, I want to do what he did, but I want to do the the travel version of that. So it's kind of my ode to all those things. That's exactly what I was, where I was kind of going and ask you if, did you, follow Gary and try to emulate what he was doing because a lot of it comes across that way but more uh, I don't know I don't, how to say this you, you draw <laughs> me in more than he did you know he was a little too hyper for me but yeah you know, he's educational he's, he's I'm trying to think energy. of the right words as well Mark <laughs> <laughs> no no I mean he's a lot and I listen and I love him and I I relate to him in a, a few different ways not so much like you said from a personality standpoint but not only did he come from a wine background but I'm an entrepreneur we're self-produced the show so I have been working my face off on this since I, you know, began it. And it's not like I just get to show up on set like a rock star, do my segment and say, see you later. Um, we are completely self-produced. We're a very small crew. A lot of people don't think that when they see the show, because it, uh, in my opinion, it does look like it's got more investment and more production value than I think people would um, expect from a team the size of us. Uh, and I, I always will take that when people say that and I, I keep it kind of quiet, um, but we're I'm an entrepreneur and I'm big on anybody going for their dreams. And I, you know, I literally started this show from an idea uh, and did all my best to execute it. And I believe good work will always produce good results, even if it's not the results you hope for. Are you still working in restaurants too, or is this your only gig at the moment? No, no, I'm uh, yeah, I'm full time for the, the first season or so I was, I was bootstrapping. We paid for everything ourselves. And then once we kind of got some traction, once we got the product off the ground, the first couple episodes, uh, we were able to get sponsorship from there on out. How do you decide, Vince, where you want to start? So season one, the first episode was Napa or Sonoma? You, you yeah, I did. Season one was all California. I was living in L.A. Uh, I'm in Chicago area now, but I was living in L.A. at the time. Do you have and, a uh, wish list you were working off or it was just because you were there, you'd started there? Yeah, I mean, I still have a wish list, um, but I that was, you know, I think one 
you know, the quintessential Rhine region is Napa. So I knew Napa had to happen. And then Santa Barbara was really close and I had a lot of contacts there. So that kind of fell into place. And same thing with, with Paso Robles, those three just being both proximity and, you know, I had made some networking in California through the restaurants. So I just kind of happened naturally um, as our first couple episodes. And then as we went to season two, uh, we did Oregon, Prosecco, Italy, and Sonoma. And that was really exciting because I didn't expect to go international so quickly. I always, that was always the goal, but it kind of fell into my lap that I had a fan of the show. He said, Hey, you know, I have a lot of contacts in that region. Let's see what we can do to make something happen. And so it kind of got me over the hump. So we did international season three was supposed to be largely international, but that was COVID year. So we ended up doing mostly domestic. So we did Walla Walla, Washington. Um, We could because we could drive there. It was a long drive, but it was a possibility um, because this was during like the height of COVID. We flying was still kind of iffy. And then we did New York once we could fly again. And then we did Mexico because it was right over the border, like technically international, but it's only three hours from Los Angeles. But I'm happy to say season four, we got to do a lot of what we didn't get to do. You know, we were planning on for season three, which it's almost all in Europe. We have seven episodes, more than we've ever done. And six of them are in Europe, which is really fun. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you how COVID impacted your plans or your ability to really make the show the vision that you had for it. Like, how did COVID maybe get in the way of the things that you were expecting or hoping to do. But then on the flip side, was there anything that was beneficial about having to stay closer to home? Yeah, but exactly. Both, both sides of that coin. I mean, we ended up, we were, like I said, I had some, so a whole bunch that came like most people's businesses screeching to a halt once everything started because it was so fresh and nobody knew what was happening. Once the dust settled and we were in like late summer slash fall, we were able to do a few domestic episodes, but I mean, like I said, the Walla Walla episode, um, we drove with the crew from Los Angeles to Walla Walla, which was like, I don't know, like 16, 18 hours, something like that. Um, so, I, But the nice thing about it is we have a small crew. So all these large productions and large production studios that have 50 member crews, well, it's really hard for them to get going during COVID. For us, we were tiny. We could stay together. We could stay in a little bubble. We could test very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were able to, to move and be a bit leaner than some of the larger crews. Um, and it gave me an opportunity to do a couple more domestic episodes that I'd wanted to do. I like willed New York into existence. I really <laughs> wanted to tell the story of New York. And I was having trouble just getting the all the pieces in place um, for several years. And so I just made a conscious decision, like, I'm going to find a way to get it done. I'll make as many phone calls as I have to make to make that New York episode, because I think New York Riesling is super underrated. I think Riesling is an amazing grape, and I hadn't talked about it yet. So I, I, that was one of the, you know, the hidden benefits from doing COVID is it forced me to do some episodes that maybe I wouldn't have done. And same thing with the Mexico episode. Yeah. I had a buddy who ran tours down there and he was like, dude, you have to check out this region. And I, I was really skeptical when he said they make wine in Mexico. One, I, I never really had heard too much about Mexican wine, but number two, it's south and it's hot. It's like it's more south than Temecula, California, which is already really hot. Right. Um, and so I was really skeptical that they could make good wine. But then you go down there and there's all these amazing microclimates because it's in a valley. It's literally the Valle de Guadalupe. 
So it's a valley and there's elevation and there's um, kind of the mountains that'll help funnel some of the wind. And so they made really amazing wines. And that's probably a region I never would have explored uh, if COVID hadn't happened. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark on his website, franklinliquors.com, and more information about myself at commonwealthwineschool.com. And for more information about our special guest today, Vince Anter, you can find his information at visforvino.com. Welcome back, and we are online with our guest today is Vince Anter, who is the producer and star, I guess you can say, of V is for Vino, which is a fantastic TV show. How would you describe it, Vince, since it's on YouTube? And right. Yeah. I say <laughs> like, TV. Is it a television show? show? Like, what do you call it? <laughs> yeah, I do say TV show. It's a bit, it's weird, right? I mean, now, I mean, but if you think about it, any show you'd see on uh, It's like Netflix this new world Hulu, of ours. It's like, well, are you a TV show? show? <laughs> but it is tough sometimes with the older generation. They do not understand. Yeah. Like, you know, my parents, friends, or they'll be like, where, where do we see it again? I'm like, right. it's, it's, like, it's lots of places, but Aunt Mary, um, like, how do you explain this to Aunt Mary, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, we are on a good amount of platforms. Um, you can watch it for free on our website and we're on YouTube, but uh, you can also watch it on Amazon Prime and we're on, we have our own Roku channel um, and a few other ones. So there's a couple places to watch it, but yes, it is, uh, it's a bit of a, a marketing conundrum. <laughs> it's our whole new world of uh, of media out here. So we were just talking about uh, how COVID affected Vince's schedule as far as where they could go, where they could film, what regions they wanted to focus on. And he was just talking about Mexico and how they had the availability to go down to Mexico and taste some wines in Baja, California, in the Valle de Guadalupe. And ironically, I just tasted wines from that region for the first time about three weeks ago. So I thought it was really fun to watch your episode because I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, they talked about this. Um, we just recently got, our, I think, our very first importer of Mexican wines into Massachusetts. So it's been very enlightening and fun and, and quite interesting to uh, to taste some of the wines from from all over the country, actually. So we did some some coastal ones like the region that you were in. Uh, and there were also some central Mexican wines that we tasted as well. Okay, the, very nice. Yeah, the, it's, import. Uh, the import is the challenge, you know. Or yeah, export, I should yeah, say the import that. and I mean, the distribution. There's not a lot of them. Yeah, there's the not importer, a lot of them you can find. Vince, who imports into into Massachusetts that Kim was talking about. I was actually talking to him. It was an interesting story because he was a psalm here in Boston. And I believe the story was he met his future wife was from Mexico. And when he went there... She said, let's go to the vineyards. He's like, what are you talking about? Vineyards mm -hmm. in Mexico. And he was impressed. And he, when he came back, he couldn't find any Mexican wines. So then he fell in love with them. He ended up bringing them in the state now. So like you said, no one really knows about it. But it, this, these type of things where you bring us to these areas, it's just great for wine education. And, and then as people see, you know, more and more little bits from, you know, it's no longer this unheard of thing right now. It's like, oh, yeah, Mexican wines. I heard about it here and here and here. So now it's the thing. Now it's not this unusual. Oh, my God, I've never heard of wines from Mexico. You know, all we all, all we know about is tequila. Now there's more information out there from all of these different channels. And that makes it, I think, easier for the consumer to understand that 
yes, this is a real thing. This isn't just some outlandish, unusual region to be producing wines. I have a few secret goals of the show and you just hit on one of them, which is I want people to expand and try everything. Mm -hmm. And if they don't like it, I'm totally fine with that. I always say like, I do tastings a lot of times. I'll bring wines from all over the world. And I say, listen, I didn't make the wines. I'm not offended if you don't like it. We say the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, but I I want people to expand and try from all over the world. The world of wine is just too big and too amazing and too varied to stick to one region. But so many people will stick to, you know, they get in a a bubble, I think, either because of fear that they're going to, you know, spend money on something they don't like or just comfort. And they'll drink the same region or the same couple grapes their whole life. And so one of my secret goals of the show is to just get people to really understand and try new places. It's a hard thing to do to get people out of that comfort zone. And we touched on this a few episodes ago where we were really talking about, well, why why is there brand loyalty or why is it so hard to get people to even taste a free sample of something. And there's there does seem to be so much fear around trying something new. You know, that maybe it's disappointment. Maybe it's just sort of this visceral, if I taste it and I don't like it, it's going to ruin my day. But yeah, that whole idea of tr- just try it, right? You know, try something new and you might be pleasantly surprised that you've got, you know, a new favorite. Yeah, I think the other thing too is just that idea of like, I feel... Like I'm not, if you look at a menu and you don't know these places, or if you go out and let's say you're in front of friends and you know, you want to order a bottle that, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody's going to like, and you're worried you're going to get a bad bottle. And then you're going to look dumb because you didn't understand what you were ordering. You don't Um, want, nobody wants to look stupid. Yeah. And, and so that was the other thing with the show. I mean, all the other shows that I was looking at, a lot of them were, they were fun. They might've been like fun, but they were providing value in that educational component in the show that helped consumers actually understand what they were buying and understand what they like and, and what they don't like. And so that was a big part of what I wanted to achieve. Yeah. Thank you, Vince, because Kim and I have been preaching this to our listeners for, for years now about try something, explore, and you're, you're getting people to do that. And I, I want to thank you for that. And I just want to mention also to our listeners, you have a, what you call a Vino VIP club on your website. And I want to tell our listeners to take advantage of this because in a few of your episodes, you bring us to these wineries and introduce us to these people. And as a retailer, I'm always researching these wineries. And in Massachusetts, a lot of them can't be found here. They're just not coming into the state. So your club, people can actually find the wines that you talk about on the show. So do you want to touch base a little bit on the Fino VIP club? Yeah, actually. So I'll, I'll clarify a little bit. So what we actually do with the Vino VIP club is we actually lean into a lot of the other elements of it. So I do offer the wines for sale on our website, but that being said, and I'm sure you've had conversations on this podcast about wine shipping. Wine shipping is a bit of a nightmare in this country for a whole lot of reasons. So I can only ship to so many states. I do have like links. If you're, if I can't ship to you, here's where you can maybe find the wine via a link. And so I do offer in the club a little bit of a discount on the wines when I can sell them to you. But the other part of the club is... I have these interviews with these winemakers and I go talk to them for, you know, let's say if I have three winemakers on an episode, I might 
talk to them in the episode for four minutes, six minutes, but we talk for like 45 minutes. And I have all this amazing insight with some of the, you know, winemakers from all over the world and really, really smart people. So I decided to start releasing videos that show those full interviews. And I also, we release behind the scenes from our filming um, and things that just kind of give you behind the scenes of how we make the show. And so we release new videos. Uh, we do offer a discount on the wine if you're a member of the club. We also, uh, you get your name in the credits of an episode if you're a member of the club. We do virtual tastings at once a quarter with like a Zoom and all our club members get together. And I usually have a guest winemaker on where we all sit and talk and taste and get to know each other. I do raffles and giveaways. I give away free Via Zarino wine glasses. And once a year, there's a big raffle and somebody gets a private tasting. So it's five bucks a month or 10 bucks if you want to go for the higher level and we try and do enough to get your money out of this Vino VIP club uh, and really get you just more involved in the show. So I wanted to touch on your philosophy of bringing wine education and this really, whole, I think, holistic approach to, to wine. And I was so pleased in your Walla Walla Washington episode that you interviewed Madeline Puckett from Wine Folly because I feel like the two of you have this real similarity in the way that you approach discussing wine with the public. And this was part of the episode where, you know, the two of you over a glass of wine, we're talking about how when you're talking about wine with guests at a restaurant or at a tasting table and what winemakers and what wine geeky people like ourselves feel like we want to get across to the consumer is very different from maybe what the consumer wants to know. And I think it's very refreshing to see people with a wealth of knowledge like yourself, like Madeline, be able to talk about it in a way that is not intimidating and not scary still have that real depth of knowledge behind it, but be able to get across what people really want to know about wine. So I'm glad that I saw the two of you having that conversation because I'm like, oh yeah, these two are completely sympathetic. Like I really enjoy watching this interview. Yeah, she was kind of one of my bucket list interviewees. I've got a few that hopefully oh, she'd be one day like on happen. my bucket list too. Like, <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, and she's just so cool. And and you know, a lot of what I try and do in the show is similar to what she tries to do with kind of the yeah, site and her absolutely. infographics. So I really was excited to interview with her. And like you said, we got to talk about the fact that like it really is the marketing of of wine is oftentimes different than, like you said, what consumers actually care about and yeah. actually need to know, or they just, mar it'll come in. If you, sometimes you go to tasting rooms and I, it'll, they'll be talking to people and telling them about the plot that it came from the civic vineyard and the civic soils. And I'm, you know, like read your audience. Like you might have a person who's mm -hmm. into that, but 90% of the time you probably have somebody who needs some, some basic foundational knowledge before you can get them to care about all that other stuff. Yeah. And that's what Madeline and me kind of talked about was how once you are hooked, you start diving down the rabbit hole and you want to know all those things. But when you're first starting out, you need basics, you know, yeah. and, and, and there's no shame in that. I mean, we all need basic. If I go pick up something new, I need the basics too. Even if it's in my field, even if I'm talking about a new region, right? 
I have to do a ton of research before I go and write the script for the episode. I don't know everything on top of my head. So like, there's no shame in being like, hey, I need the basics of this region. I need the basics of these grapes and then start with your building blocks and work your way up. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about wine is that even those of us that have been doing it for 20 years, there's still so much more to learn and that keeps it exciting. And I think that that keeps it fresh for us, for those of us that are that do it every single day. And there's still always more to learn and always more to get excited about. Yeah, 100 percent. It's very rare to Vince that uh, Kim and I kind of go the same way on when we're we're talking about something. That is but not this, true. <laughs> this is one thing that I said I have to talk to Vince about the the Walla Walla episode, and we talk about Madeline all the time in her site and referencing things. So I was very excited about that. But also in that episode, you had Drew Bledsoe's wine, a former Patriot great wine. Yeah, yeah. You're out there. Somehow I knew a, you were going to touch on this, Mark. Mr. Mr. Patriots season tickets holder. No, it's just one of those things where, you know, I don't think he gets the credit that uh, he should. And and I think over time here in Mass, it's kind of going down. But uh, I'm glad you brought that in. Walla Walla episode. And when you brought me to Italy and the whole Prosecco thing, I thought was a really great episode. And to be in that region and just show the beauty of it. Excellent job. And you mentioned your crew, Vince. I just like also to say to our listeners, watch his programs till the end, because you're always giving the credit to the people who help you on the crew and showing them. And I think that's a great touch you do with your program. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. I mean, you know, it, it really is. Um, they work so hard. My crew, my I have two crews now. I have a Europe crew and I have an American crew and both of them are amazing. But my American crew started with me uh, when was working in bars too, when I was working in bars and they kind of were just getting into video and film production. And I was just getting into this idea. And it's cool because we've all kind of evolved up together. Um, and not to, I'm not I swear I'm not just trying to pitch the Vino VIP club, but a couple things that we mentioned the Madeline interview. Once again, it's like three minutes in the episode. We talked for like 40. I put that whole interview up because we her and I just got along so well. So that's in our VIP uh, page on our membership and then a bunch more behind the scenes with the crew. Again, more stuff that I just put in the behind the scenes Vino VIP club part because I can't fit it in an episode, but it's some really cool stuff. So I always like to ask this question of people who obviously have the passion for wine that you do. What was your aha wine moment? Because we all have one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I went to, I I, kind of have a couple, but I, I would say the big one was I studied abroad for a year while I was in college. I did six months in Lyon, France, and six months in Linköping, Sweden. I was a junior. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I, I don't even know if I was 21, but I could drink, you know, because it was Europe. Yeah, um, junior year. We all go on junior year, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was, I went to Bordeaux. Uh, I went to Saint-Emilion and then be, I was studying with French students and one of them invited me to their house and they had a, a dinner uh, with all of us. And I mentioned how I'm, I'm kind of into wine. My dad was in the wine business when I was growing up. So I was kind of always around wine. I didn't know anything about it, but I, I just was always near it. And I was trying to understand it more. I was working in restaurants, trying to learn a little bit. And they brought out something when I told them that I said, hey, I'm into wine. It was a French family who lives in Bordeaux. 
they brought up something from their seller. And to this day, I don't know what it was because I didn't know much. I'm sure if you showed it to me mm -hmm. today, it'd be like, oh my gosh, that's what you poured me. But I didn't know. But it was this mm -hmm. aha moment where I, I took it. And I remember being like, this is completely different than anything I had ever had before. It was an old Bordeaux. And if all you've drunk is California wines, they're not, you know, that is the polar opposite, right? It's dirty and rustic and gravelly. And if it's old, it's got and this old. kind of developed, you know, yeah. uh, tertiary flavors. So it was this moment where it's like, oh man, this is so different. And that's why I tell, I want people to try different things because that's really where the fun of wine is, is how different every wine can be. Very cool. I love hearing people's personal stories about what was that moment that had that like light switch in your brain that was like, wow, this is something that I really can pay attention to and, and really sink my teeth into. So I, yeah, I, the, I, I love hearing like what those moments are for people. Yeah. And there's a second one and it's not an aha moment because I was already into wine at this point, but it did change the way I think about white wine, which was, I went to, my buddy was a Psalm at a place called Melise, which is in Los Angeles. It's a uh, they actually just got two Michelin stars. So the, the, uh, I had gone there and he brought out some amazing wines for his, you know, it was a, you know, 10 course, whatever tasting menu. And we'd gone for a special occasion and he brought out Chenin Blanc four different ways, a sparkling, a squeaky clean style, mm -hmm. an older oxygenated style, and then a dessert style, all from the same place, all Chenin Blanc wildly different. And that was another moment where I was like, oh my gosh, like even just getting into one grape and one place, the wines can still be so different. Which on the one the hand can make you feel like, oh my gosh, there's so much more to explore. And then on the other hand, it's like, how could I ever possibly be able to figure all of this out if the same grape in the same place can produce such variation of style like that's that's why I, I talk, everybody I talk stops a lot. at burgundy you know right right <laughs> and just I, and I, burgundy we do um mark and i do a lot about wine labels and like even just for the novice wine drinker how can you look at that wine label and be able to tell anything about what that thing is going to taste like and think that that's one of the stumbling blocks for a lot of wine consumers is that if you don't have so much of that background knowledge, how do you look at that bottle and have some sort of understanding that even just am I going to like this when I open it up? And yeah, that totally adds to the, <laughs> I think, to the to the problems that a lot of consumers face in that something like Shannon can produce so many different styles. And on the one hand, it's it's wonderful that that variety can come out of one grape variety. And then on the other hand, it's like, oh my gosh, how am I ever supposed to make any sense of this? Yeah, no, no. And it's funny you mentioned it. I'm, I'm working on editing our Bordeaux episode right now, which is one of our, our new ones coming out. Fun. And I literally have a segment where I pop up labels and I break down how to read them. And I do yeah. it like with a couple of them because, yeah, I mean, it's it's tough when you're first learning. Yeah. And so I want to touch base on you mentioned food pairings. You have a great free download on the site, a food pairing guide, which I thought you put together together excellent with some nice graphics. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And also, what do you feel is the best food and wine pairing for a person who wants to, who's never paired a wine with food to explain how that magic happens? What do you think is the best thing to try? 
I have a new answer for that. I used to always have a couple classics that I'm sure have been said before, but after my trip actually to Albarena, Rios Baixas area and Bordeaux, I have a new answer. So I'll get to that. So the first thing about pairing is like, I actually, I, I have, when I get time, I don't know when this will be, but I want to make a, a cookbook because I cook a lot. That's like my second passion, but I always start with the wine. Yeah, everybody cooks and then goes and gets a wine that pairs. But I start with my wine and I say, okay, what will pair with this? So I want to make a cookbook that does that because that to me is the is the fun of of wine is really seeing what it does with with food from a from a perspective of like what should you do? I mean, I do think I know a lot of people in the effort to make wine less pretentious will say drink whatever you want with whatever. I just don't agree with that because there are some. I would say objectively bad pairing, but that's not to say that you have to be super rigid either. There's a few basic principles that you can follow that I put that in that guide. I talk about them in the show. There's like, you know, 12 principles or so. And if you hit two or three of them, you can usually come up with a decent pairing. If all else fails, you pick a a sparkling wine or a high acid wine, and you're going to be pretty safe with most things. So that being said, I mean, I can talk all about, you know, pairings and how I do it, but I did have a pretty miraculous one, like I said, when I was filming, which was taking Sauterne. So Sauterne is a, a sweet dessert wine, a Botrytis dessert wine from Bordeaux. That's a sweet white wine. Uh, it's honeyed, it's chamomile. And I was with a chef and he had me pour a little bit of the Sauterne onto an oyster before I eat it. Like it, the oyster's open poured it onto the oyster, and then you taste the oyster. And the combination of all of that in your mouth at the same time, the salt from the oyster mixed with the sweet of the wine gave you like a salty sweet. It brought out all these like beautiful caramel notes from the wine. It toned back some of the sugar. It was one of the most insane things. And I tried a lot of pairings, but it was one of the most insane, miraculous I can't believe when I'm tasting pairings I've ever had in my life. And so that would be the one that I think could get people into wine pairing. Huh. Interesting. It's almost like where there's the philosophy when you're diving into different Asian cuisines where you're 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 doing the this the sweet and the salty and the sour and the spicy and you put them all together and you have this like one little ball of perfection. It's almost like with the brininess and the sweetness and the acidity in that one little bite. You know, you had all of that together and you, know, you wouldn't ordinarily think, oh, let me let me put this really sweet wine with this raw, briny <laughs> piece of yeah, seafood. No, no, it's I mean, but when you, you, know, have you have all those components, you know, you have the pairings, like you said, compare and contrast. And then you have the ones that are meant to like mix the flavors. And then you have the ones that are meant to be the palate cleansers. Right. And right. that was definitely like a let's mix the flavors yeah. and see what they all do together. Whereas ordinarily be- we would go the opposite. Right. We would be like, OK, so pick a high acid white because it acts like lemon, you know, on your palate. And mm-hmm. you could know, think that, that that's going to work. And wow, what a cool. Yeah, it was what a cool idea. Cool. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. I did the same thing in when we went to Rios Baixas, which is a big seafood mm. place. They were like he was showing me the same thing, too. I didn't he didn't know about the previous guy. He was like, pour some of the wine into the clam or into the oyster, into the shell. And that's a thing I guess they do. And I, I didn't know that, but it really does change the way that you taste it. See, with a with a, a dry, high acid white like that makes so much more sense to my yeah it was a different pairing it was still (laughs) great but it was different 
Yeah. Which is why I'm, like I said, like, you know, there are, you know, you follow some basic principles. You can get some cool pairings. It doesn't have to be a perfect pairing. There's not mm-hmm. one perfect pairing for every dish. Right. There's just one, uh, you know, a couple different ones that might be cool. And, and a handful that are terrible. <laughs> and a handful that are terrible. <laughs> but pretty much anything. Can, yeah. Through your episodes, you really place a lot of emphasis on place and terroir and you go into soil and and climate quite a lot. And there definitely is kind of two schools, right, where some people place way more of the emphasis on place and then other people are like, no, 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 it's the great variety. So Cabernet and let's learn about Cabernet from all over the world, as opposed to let's focus on the flavor of this one particular place. I kind of just wanted to ask you how you came to that, you know, that viewpoint that I remember in one of your episodes, and I forget which one it was, where you were like, if you like a particular wine from a particular place, don't go searching out that grape variety in a different region. Stick to that place and taste a bunch of other things from that region and then get more of a sense of the taste of that place. And so, I mean, I I know other people who've been, you know, in the wine industry for a very, very long time who take the opposite approach, approach it from the from the perspective of the grape variety instead of from the sense of place. Um, And I just kind of wanted to get your take on how did you get there? Like, what was it that made you feel like this is the emphasis that you wanted to take? Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty easy answer for me. I listen, I, I respect everybody's point of view. To me, it's not even a competition. I very much feel because here's the, I'll give you an example. If I have a Northern Rhone Syrah and a Bordeaux and a Burgundy all next to each other, all three of those to me would have more in common because they're all kind of cooler climate, old world regions than a new world, anything, a new world Cabernet, a new world Syrah. To me, I just get much more similarities. And and to me, structure is so much like, okay, the flavors may change. But what people tend to like personally, in my opinion, about when I when I talk to people, what do they like in wines? They tend to like wines that have similar structure to the wines that they already enjoy. Uh, I think the flavors, you know, you can swap out. But to me, you really just get a better more consistent product by going by place. Um, I understand why you would make the other argument. I mean, grape isn't not important. You know, obviously grapes have things baked in that are going to affect the final wine, but I'm definitely a place guy. Mm -hmm. I like your emphasis on texture versus flavor, because I think that that's something that gets sometimes lost when you read wine tasting notes is that it's all about how many descriptive terms can we put in there for what this fruit is. Mango and whatever, as opposed to, well, let's find the similarities between, say, this wine and this wine when it comes to their acid structure or their tannic structure. And you might like this wine that's completely different from anything that you've ever had, but might have a lot of those similar textural elements to a favorite wine of yours. So, you know, go there, but you might not have thought about it because it might be a very different grape variety or or a different place. Yeah, I mean, is a is a California Cabernet drinker who's trying to try something new going to be more satisfied with a Bordeaux or with a South American Malbec? Mm-hmm. To me, he's going to be more satisfied with the Malbec because it's going to have right. those, that similar plushness, that similar tannin structure. You know, it's going to have that similar alcohol content. To me, that's where they're going to find something else they like. 
So that's why I tend to emphasize place. I just think that that is a more accurate indication of what your palate enjoys. But that being said, I, I definitely understand why you would go the other way too. And listen, just try it all. And then you don't have to, you don't even have to do that. You could just keep trying and you don't even have to make a decision ever. Oh, I'm just playing devil's advocate. <laughs> <laughs> Vince, I want to thank you for bringing your uh, passion to uh, your show. And I, I hope our listeners hear how you know, Kim and I are excited just talking to you. We could we could talk and ask you questions all day. It's just uh, a pleasure to be talking with you. And I hope our listeners will check out V is for Vino and, and uh, check out some of these things we've been talking about. You do an excellent job. Thank you. Yeah, you guys as well. I appreciate you, uh, you know, helping do exactly, you know, what I'm trying to do with the show, which is just help people try more wines um, and find more, more ways to enjoy the world of wine. Um, and yeah, if you want to watch the show, uh, obviously I, I would love that. Um, I'm also very active on social. When people message me, I always write back. If you have questions on wine, questions about the show, uh, we have three seasons out now. Season four is coming out in May or June. So if you need to so catch up before May or June. <laughs> Super. Well, thank you for uh, for being on our show tonight, Vince. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, with special guest Vince Anter from visforvino.com. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine and past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye.